0: you know what those swoopy sounds mean you're listening to playmakers i'm your host jordan blackman and on every episode i interview a game industry legend or leader or luminary or some other l word and i go deep with them on a subject of their expertise this week eric zimmerman ceo and co-founder of game lab they created the rather iconic diner dash he teaches at nyu we get into it on this episode stay tuned Okay, you're not really supposed to do lip smacks. That's not not good podcast etiquette. Um, But we're keeping it in. We're doing it live. This is episode seven of Playmakers. And uh, if you don't know by now, I'm your host, Jordan Blackman. And on every episode, uh, you know what I do. I interview someone who is an expert in the game industry, and I learn from them. And by subscribing, you learn along with me. This week, we have... The great teacher and professor and game designer above all, Eric Zimmerman, who's taught at MIT, the University of Texas, Parsons School of Design, NYU, Rhode Island School of Design, School of Visual Arts, and also he created Game Lab, the groundbreaking indie-ish studio that created Diner Dash. Eric is deeply embedded in the New York game scene. We talk about that. We talk about the story of Game Lab and what it was like to be a part of that scene and actually to design that company. Uh, we talk about design as a way of life in this episode and what that means to Eric. You know, I, I on this show, a big part of what I do is I bring on people and ask them for tips, tricks, tools, tactics, you know, frameworks, processes, things that are going to help you get better at what you do. Eric pushed back on that a little bit and said, hey, you know what? It's not really about any of that stuff. It's about being a certain way in the world as a designer. So we talk about that a little bit. And he also explains how he designed Game Lab to be a place where the people who worked there felt ownership and felt authorship of the intellectual property that they were creating. How did he make a studio where people were able to collaborate and feel like they had agency but didn't feel territorial and defensive? So all that is in this episode In my interview with Eric and gosh, I like immediately as as we were ending the interview, I was like, I want to interview this guy again. So um, enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. Thanks for coming on the show, Eric.
1: I'm really happy to be here. I'm always happy to talk about games.
0: I was really interested in having you on the show because you've done so much work both with indies and in academia And I'm kind of curious for our audience of people who are mostly indie developers or corporate developers or students, how would you kind of contextualize the value of the academic game world for that group?
1: Well, it's kind of funny the way I ended up in academia. My parents are professors. So I do have to say it's a little bit my cultural background. I grew up in a family as a campus brat in Bloomington, Indiana. My parents taught art education there. But I'll also say that, Coming of age in the industry in New York City, it's a very particular place. New York has never had a big AAA production studio where people worked. And I started in the game industry in the early 90s. And it was really in the CD-ROM era. But again, there weren't major development studios in New York City. There was never, you know, a, an, an Ubisoft or, a, or an Origin or something like that in New York.
0: And, I think of game Loft as like the closest thing.
1: Yeah, but even they were doing kind of mobile and online games, and so there's been a lot of sort of smaller platform work. There's been a lot of ad agencies. There's a lot of content companies here like MTV and Fisher-Price or Sesame Workshop, and there's been a lot of kind of freelancers and people doing experimental work. So just to say that New York City game designers for the last 20 years or so, we've kind of had to cobble together our careers and In a sense, we were all sort of indie before indie started. I remember writing an essay around like 2001 called Do Independent Games Exist? And this was like, you know, five years or so before indie games became a thing. When we started our studio Game Lab in 2000, we always said we're an independent filmmaker of games. But we're trying to figure out exactly what that means. In that sense, the idea of being in a context where you had to do smaller projects that were often more experimental or innovative. You were generating a lot of ideas and concepts, a lot of which didn't get made, but that let you kind of work through a lot of design thinking without having to be stuck on a big project for two or three years at once. It was an interesting place to grow up. At the same time, I started teaching right out of graduate school, Mm. at the Interactive Telecommunications Program, in NYU. I didn't go to school there, but I started teaching there right after I got my MFA, literally the next, that fall after I had graduated. Frank Lance and I started teaching a game design class in the interactive telecommunications program, which is sort of like a digital media design and production type program. It's been around a really long time, so it sort of pioneered that whole idea. And I have to say that that had a huge impact on game design because when i started teaching which was i don't round like something like 93 92 93 when i started teaching it might have been 93 94 anyway when i started teaching game design as a field didn't exist the way it did today for example i, I actually was trained as a painter as an undergraduate i studied painting And in painting, I got this very formalist training. They have like ways of teaching you about line and color and composition and visual thinking. And there's kind of a standard set of classes. Then there are people that are overthrowing that. There's kind of schools of thought about what it means to be an artist. And obviously that changes from decade to decade and century to century. But there's kind of like battling isms, right? Like modernism and minimalism and conceptual art. And so all of these different schools of thought are kind of battling it out. Today in games, we have a little bit of that. But back then in the 90s, it was more like people are just kind of working in the industry, and there wasn't the same kind of complicated discourse that bridged the theory and practice of what we were doing. There weren't like books coming out, there weren't conferences other than like very industry oriented here's how to make games or here's the business of the industry thing. So it's not like today where you have conferences on games and learning or reaching a casual audience or academic conferences about, you know, games and players or how games create meaning and all these other things. So in a sense, we were really discovering this field of game design. When I was a painter, I felt like I was in a discipline. There's a disciplinary yeah. knowledge. There's a way of doing things. There's a language that's been refined, at least since the Renaissance, when Vasari published Lies of the Artist and started talking about what it means to be an artist and kind of establishing our contemporary idea of art as a discipline. But in games, teaching with Frank Lance at the Interactive Telecommunications Program, I was really figuring out what it meant to be a game designer in the sense of what is a game, how do they function, how do we talk about what we're doing, how do we communicate to each other, whether you're a designer on a team of other developers, whether you're talking to a publisher to get funding, whether you're talking to a journalist to to get them to write about your game. Also out of that, I worked with Katie Salen uh, to write Rules of Play, which, which ended up being a textbook about game design, and it's still in heavy rotation these days, even though uh, it came I've out it more than so 10 many, years ago. I've
0: seen it on desk after desk in, in studios as well.
1: To me, the book is really basic, but we, you know, we were just trying to establish some basic concepts. So I guess here's what I'm trying to say to answer your question. Being an ac- academic for me was never like, I want to be a professor, it was just like, oh, teaching a class helps me understand what game design is. Um, Writing this book helps me clarify my thinking about what games are. So I, even though now I'm a full-time professor and I spend a lot of time teaching and talking to students um, and being part of this academic community, I still think of myself as basically a game designer who does these other things, who who teaches classes in order to be a better designer. When I, I teach in order to hone my skills as a designer. You know, I study martial arts and my teacher, who's an amazing Kung Fu practitioner, he teaches every day the beginner classes. And it's clear that for him, teaching is part of his practice Mm. as a martial arts practitioner. And so for me, I also feel like teaching, and this is my own personal approach to game design. There's a lot of valid ways to be a designer. But for me, teaching, I kind of, Folded into my practice, it helps me keep my sword sharp.
0: Well, I totally get that. I taught for uh, about three years at uh, the Bay Area Video Coalition, like beginning game design classes, and it was it was incredibly useful to me. I, I still, you know, as I transitioned into mobile, I, I I found that I leaned a lot on some of the frameworks that I had taught students because it was a it was a it was much muddier waters um, wading into some of those new territories. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. What I'm excited about learning from you is, with everything you know and and everything you've studied and everything you teach, what are the pieces that that um, you know you you feel like ah if, if more game developers understood you know MDA or or some other framework, some other way of thinking about about game design. This is a good opportunity to to discuss some of those ideas.
1: You know what? It's funny. I used to think that there was kind of nuggets of knowledge that people understood and if they just got if they just understood this one thing if they just understood for example the fundamentals of designing a choice for a player that you have to present it in a way they have to get understand the the outcome of what they did and those choices are kind of the building blocks of making a successful game experience like things like that these kind of fundamentals and basic concepts i guess i have a different feeling now i guess my feeling is that being a game designer is not about the knowledge that you have. And I, I think about design as kind of like a way of being like a kind of like a lifestyle choice or something. It's a way of seeing the world. It's a, it's kind of a set of practices that you do, a set of activities, some of which are making games, but some of which are how you approach your personal relationships or Or how you think about the environment that you live in, or how you think about the culture that you live in. I see young designers falling into certain traps or making certain mistakes that I made, like, you know, thinking, oh, well, how do I make a game that's as compelling as a film, you know, because I love films and films are stories. And so why can't my games give me the pleasure of film? And my answer to that is always, well, you never want to create one cultural medium or form under the shadow of another one. So instead of saying, why don't I have a game that tells a story as great as a film, you should say, what is a story that I could only tell in a game mm-hmm. that that leverages the unique characteristics of games in order to tell a story? So th- that's the kind of thing I think that you're talking about, like basic ideas and and maybe fundamental concepts that would help designers... Oh, like basically avoid these pitfalls that we fall into or that a lot of people tend to fall into when they first start making games. But see, now I'm not so sure because I used to think, okay, my job as a teacher is to help people avoid those. But maybe my job as a teacher and as also a colleague is just to help people as they stumble through that landscape, doing things like overscoping a project and then having to realize, oh, my gosh, everything always takes longer and it's harder to communicate and I can't fix bugs in time that I thought I would, like, that's just part of the process of learning how things work and making conceptual mistakes like misunderstandings about narrative and film. Maybe everybody has to work through those issues on their own and that's just part of what it means to come up as a designer. Or, you know, in fact, maybe those misunderstandings result in amazing games because... Sometimes you have veteran designers that have been around a long time, and they make a crappy game. And sometimes you have some young buck who stumbles into an amazing design, and they come out with something spectacular. So, it's not really clear to me that more knowledge is better. Sometimes knowledge is a bad thing. Sometimes, sometimes you get, you can get so polluted. Oh my gosh, I'm never going to have a new idea. Everything's already been thought of, or or I need to, you know, think ten times before I make a decision because so many people have been in this space before and then it kind of kills off the youthful vigor that might otherwise propel your overconfidence into something totally weird and experimental and fantastic. Yeah. So I yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I I used to think that I was providing knowledge to help people overcome These problems, but now I think everyone has their own journey. This is sounds starting to sound kind of New Agey. I don't mean it like that, but everyone kind of has their own journey, and um, and they have to like everyone has to make their own mistakes. And I'm making games and playing games and talking about games and teaching game design as just part of the stuff that I do as a designer. And my students are there as well, and and often. I don't think of my students as students I think of them as just other designers and we're just doing stuff together and a classroom is just a situation just like a development studio is a situation there's different constraints there's different commercial and legal and you know bureaucratic constraints at the same time in the end there's just problems being handed to us and we're solving them you know and I'm 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 the one who's just handing the problems to my students to solve and that's all I'm really there to do is hand them problems and and help them, not help them solve them, but but help them see how their solutions are working and not working. I don't know, I, I mean, it's I guess it's a really good question that you're asking, but I feel like if there were silver bullets of game design knowledge that, that we could just shoot into people and suddenly they'd make great games <sighs> and the world would be full of great games, you know? Like, we don't think about music that way, right? It's not like, oh, musicians, they're full of misconceptions. If they only understood really what music is about, then we'd have great music. Well, but music is also about this, something that's ineffable, right? That we can't put into words. And I think games are the same things. We're talking about pleasure.
0: Well, I think you're right that it's the same thing, but I, I do think people kind of make that same error of like, oh, what are, the, what are the licks? You know, if I could just get like these guitar licks right. or these particular right. drum fills, you know, that would make me a musician.
1: Well, but what are the things that you think everyone is is leaving out? Like, do you feel like, do you look around and say, oh gosh, here are the mistakes everyone is making that, that we should try and correct?
0: I don't think there are silver bullets. And what I'm actually interested is, I want to I go more deeply into what you mean by kind of like what it's like to live as a designer and, and that okay. perspective, because I think that's super interesting. But I do think there are pieces of information that have a, a big impact on me, that I know have been really valuable in my own design work. For example a kind of like layers of the onion model of games has been super helpful for me. And kind of understanding way of looking at what a core loop is, why it's important, you know, some ways that I can sort of like knock on it, tap on it from different angles to see if mm. it has qualities that, that tend to make core loops, you know, effective. Is that something that's going to be true in all contexts and all ways? No. And some of those ways that I like to look at a core loop seem like they work better in like a mobile context than they probably would, um, in other contexts. And does, and I think to your point, I think I've also got, I, I do can, can get stuck in those things in, in ways right. where they don't necessarily apply. You know, um, I can, I can enjoy Firewatch, uh, even though, you know, the core loop is there, there might not be much to it, but that designer went and made a statement with the, where they're doing that, that game that worked, right. My feeling is that there's sort of an in-between space where we can have these useful tools, we just can't kind of worship them.
1: And when you say tool, you mean like a conceptual model or framework that helps you think through a problem? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I will say this. I mean, the way that I teach and the way that that Frank and I started teaching the way that Katie Salen and I wrote Rules of Play is basically there's not one correct way of looking at games. And that what we have to do is we have to be able to put on a whole series of different lenses or frameworks or paradigms or whatever you want to call them. Katie and I called them schema. And rules of play is organized in, here's some schema that are around logic and math and uh, cybernetic feedback loops and probability and sort of more numerical, formal approaches. Then here's a whole bunch that have to do with human experience that have to do with emotion, narrative, psychology, social interaction, pleasure, right, addiction, things that things that are, here's a whole different set of schema. And then here's another one that has to do with cultural context, understanding how you're doing fits into larger cultural landscapes or media, how how it creates communities of players, Mm. how you are falling into traps of representation around gender or or ideology or things like that. So that idea of different frameworks or different um, schema, some of them formal, some of them more experiential, some of them more cultural, that's the most important thing that as designers, we are flexible and that you don't fall into just using one lens to look at games because it might be that your game is broken and players don't like it because uh, you know it, it's a two-person game and the first player always wins. Well, there's probably a formal problem, right? Like you need to rebalance. You need to make the first player's turn half as powerful as a regular turn so they don't get a leg up on the player you know, turn two, et cetera, et cetera. But it may be that your players are just not identifying with the main character. And that's a totally different, maybe more of a cultural issue. Who's your audience? Who's your main character? How are they connected? How you know what's the psychology of, of that or what's the narrative world you're creating? So but those are totally different ways of thinking. Now to me, this is why I love being a game designer mm. because everything that you might study or read about or think about is relevant so you can study science and math and logic but you can also study storytelling and human psychology and brain chemistry if you want to you know you could be an anthropologist or sociologist and think about culture that way all of that is relevant to what we do as game creators but the most important thing is is to have our students be flexible and for designers to be flexible And so if you're only looking at things from a formalist point of view, if you're only looking at things from a feminist point of view and you can't pop out of that, then I think the design does start to suffer. So maybe this is the best answer to your question, which is it's not one thing, but it's many things. It's the ability to be many things. And I sometimes see designers that have like a really interesting model. It's almost like they decide, okay, I've decided that let's just use an easy example that that Everything is wrong with the game industry is about competition and winning and goals. And so I've decided that I'm in the not games movement or walking simulator or pure narrative, interactive narrative experience. And so down with games and games are bad. I Mm -hmm. love that. That's great. Have a position, like things, don't like things. But then to say, therefore, this is how everyone should make their culture. Therefore, this this is the proper model for what being a game is. I call that design fundamentalism. Sure. When you have your own point of view, same thing can happen on the formalist end of the scale. People can say games are about mechanics and balance and and the content is just the surface. And the only thing that really matters is what's underneath. And an esports player stops caring about the narrative and the world and all they care about is balance and interaction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's OK, too. But then to say like that's obviously not every game or not every player's experience or not what everyone thinks about a game. So, so I, I like to think about these models and ways of thinking as like tools. You say tools. I use tools too. Like like a, on your bat belt, right? Right. It's That's like, where okay, I was imagining it. Right down yeah. there. Yeah, you can't you you can't use a batarang to solve every problem, right? And if all you've been doing is practicing batarang, then you you know you need your your bat gas grenade and. You know, it's not there. So
0: I think that um, a lot of a lot of working pros, myself included, we do get used to a particular tool belt. You know, because we're working on a particular genre or platform, or we've just been at it for a while. And I think, and, and you know, so having really what I feel like this is ultimately becoming is a giant advertisement for this podcast because we're going to oh. bring lots of different ways of thinking to people, hopefully. Yeah. But I think that's probably the answer to the question that I was kind of coming here with, which is, you know, what can academia offer? Well, it has all these, it has a rich vocabulary. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think not everyone is, you know, academia is not the right context for everyone, but I will say that it's wonderful to be able to, for me as a designer, to not have to make a living from my work and be able to do weird experiments. So, I've been, for the last five or six years, I've been working with Natalie Putsi, who's an architect. She and I have been doing these large-scale museum installations that are games. They're not digital. They're just physical games. Some of them are a little more like theater performances. Most of them are kind of like these big sculptures that people play. Some of them are huge, like huge, immense, inflatable things with people moving large objects and I could never do that if I was working at a commercial studio or running my own company. I mean, I don't make money from them. We're lucky if they break even, but they, you know, they get shown around the world in different museums and stuff. And it's amazing that I'm able to do it. And I'm able to do it because I'm a, I'm a professor. So I teach classes here, but that's not full time. My my quote unquote research is whatever my creative practice is because we're in Tisch School of the Arts um, at NYU. So so that's how academia is good. And I should also mention one other thing to add add to, you know, uh, like what can help out people. I think collaborating with people outside of games, it's really been helpful for me. To just to just to be with people that are not always game makers. You don't realize how much you take for granted. You know, like every time I started working with Natalie on a project, I I'm like, "Okay, so people are on a grid and they and she's like, <laughs> "Why are they on a grid?" And I'm like, well, of course, you know, put them in squares on a grid. She's like, I don't like grids. I just don't like the way they look. They're not going to be on a grid. And I say, well, they have to be on sort of spaces. We have to know where they are. And she's like, well, let's try some other shapes then. So then we end up with these weird organic kind of flowing patterns and things like that. You know, we just take so much for granted as as game designers that there's a grid. And, you know, grid underlies code, too. You know, you, you start a 3D space with a 3D coordinate grid. But if that's not your starting point, you end up somewhere different. So that, that's that been one of my tools is just finding great collaborators.
0: Any of those exhibits that people could check out?
1: No, but you can go to ericzimmerman.com or Natalie's site, n a k w o r k s N-A-K-W-O-R-K-S.com. They're more like temporary exhibitions, so they're not up permanently anywhere.
0: I was poking around a little bit online and I saw on LinkedIn that someone had mentioned that Game Lab was like an incredibly well-structured company. And I thought that was a really interesting... Comment and it made me curious. I want to learn more about what that structure was and, and how it worked.
1: Maybe that's the best comment I could get on Game Lab, and I should say the Game Lab wasn't just me. It was Peter Lee, so he and I were the two co-founders. He's now living in South Korea, but um, he and I ran Game Lab for about a decade, and Game Lab made mostly online games. Diner Dash was what the one that we were most well known for, mm-hmm. but we did a we did a ton of games. We did small games. We grew to about thirty people. At our peak, um, and I guess I always approach. I game feel like Lab that was the,
0: that was like a very um, fundamental, and I don't I don't know it particularly well, but like the fundamental part of the history of the New York game scene.
1: Well, that's nice of you to say. I mean, definitely when I look around at people that are running companies now in New York City, like Gigantic, mechanic or, or Playmatics, Frank's Company, Area Code, where you worked, a lot I, of people I came with, through. I work with, work with. Sorry, sorry, work with. Um, a lot of people came through Game Lab, so um, yeah, we were well, we were early, and and uh, it's not a huge scene here, so a lot of people passed through the company. I feel like I approached the design of a company kind of like a game, in the sense that with a game you're not really designing the outcome, unless you're making like an on-rail shooter or something that's a very very linear game. If you're designing a game like you know like a game of poker or a fighting game. You're just designing a set of possibilities. Yeah. You don't know how they're going to play out. And so that's, you know, essentially game designers create rules. They create a context. They create things for people to do or, or set up potentials. And that's what a company is as well. It's a set of procedures and policies. It's a physical layout. It's a set of personnel policies. It's a set of kind of work processes and technical tools. And you hope that as with a game, unexpected stuff happens. So that mm-hmm. I always felt the sweetest pleasure as a game designer for me is seeing players do things with my games that I never, ever could have anticipated. Oh my gosh, I never thought this social interaction would happen or this strategy would happen or this, this way of cheating at the game was possible. You know, that's genius. So that puts the biggest smile on my face. And for a company, I think that was my goal too, that kind of idea of innovation where you're just setting things in motion and creating structures and you realize the paradox is that constraints produce creativity. Just like in a game, if you give people a blank piece of paper and a pencil, they might not know what to do. But if you make a tic-tac-toe grid, suddenly, you know, there's something, there's something that they can do and there's a way for them to be virtuosic or generous or, or, or cheat or creative or, you know, Let's, let's, uh, let's add some more squares and see what happens. So those kinds of constraints and structures enable creativity. That's the way we approach game lab. So, so I'm glad that that came across at least to someone.
0: What were some of the actual structures? Like, was it, was it kind of like a, an incubator style, what we would call today, like an incubator or
1: it wasn't an incubator because we were a totally independent company that was doing mostly client work and some original stuff. We did not have deep pockets. So, we were just like hustling from month to month, trying to like find new jobs and get them done, get' them in, get a job in, do it, get it out. We were hustling to make rent every month. I mean, it wasn't wasn't like we were about to go bankrupt, but let's just say that i w- I did business development, and you know I was always trying to trying to bring in more jobs. Once we had some successes like DinerDash, it got a little bit easier, but then we were growing, and then our overhead was getting bigger, and you know we had to support even more. But in terms of the company structures. One of the things I liked about Game Lab is that we never had creative directors on projects. So we had like five to seven people Mm. on a project. And there's one thing I learned from this very old and musty book um, that was a Microsoft book, Project Development, which was basically it made the distinction between people that kind of punch in, feel like, okay I'm here to do my job. I've done my job. Now I'm done. Leave me alone. And people that feel authorship and ownership of a project people that feel like they're creating an intellectual property, and they're a genuine creative author. And this, the point of this book, which was had some boring title like Managing Software Development, it was just a software development, not even a game development book, was just that the, the point of designing a process was to give people that feeling of authorship. Mm. And what I realized at Game Lab was that you can't fake it. The only way to actually give people authorship is if you actually give it to them. And so the worst creative situations I've ever been in working with other companies or for other companies is that when there's like sort of like uh, a creative director, a big ego who's sitting on top of the project and sees everybody else as their extensions to, to help, you know, fulfill their, their creative vision. No one else feels like it's their project. Everyone feels like they're just like a, a tool for this big idiot to, to use, you know? And so at Game Lab, we never had creative directors, we never had someone sitting at the top. If you were doing audio design, that was your role and your authority. You could make creative decisions about that. Now that didn't mean that we ignored the client or the publisher, we had to please them, and we had to please the player more than anybody. But if you have a situation where there is trust, respect and communication, just like a good relationship, if you've got all three of those things, then people don't get territorial. They don't say, hey, stay off my turf. I'm the audio designer. Don't tell me what to do. But you get the opposite. The opposite is I'm desperate for feedback. Please help me integrate what I'm doing into what everyone else is doing. Please tell me if it's working or not. Please, let's work together. And guess what? I have ideas for you too. I have ideas about the visual design and the game design. And even though it's not my main area of expertise, I want to help. So if you can kind of – and for me it was almost – Peter Lee and I really focused on the culture of the company, and if you can get that feeling of collaboration, if you can get that feeling where people have authority, but they're not being territorial, then it's an amazing kind of process that can bubble up out of that. You kind of It's like getting something boiling to the kind of critical mass where ideas can come from anywhere, and people are always receptive. But people are still focused and have a very clear sense of their role. So it's not just a kind of loosey-goosey collaboration. So when Game Lab was at its best, I think we achieved that. We didn't always achieve that. It was always a work in progress. you know. And this is especially true of smaller teams. We had teams mm-hmm. of like three, three, five, seven people for most of our projects. And so that's what I mean when I say we were kind of like an indie studio before indie games was a thing. But for those smaller teams, this works really well. I think it's probably totally different in a, where you have like 100, 200 people working on a project. But sure. I've never actually worked on a AAA project. The biggest, I've worked on like projects with like 40, 50, 60 people at the most, but I've never worked on like a really huge project like that.
0: You know, what you're saying reminds <laughs> me a little bit of how, how uh, like a band would work.
1: Yeah, hopefully.
0: Yeah, ideally, yeah. If it works yeah. well, obviously it can go wrong a million different ways.
1: Right, right. So again, I don't feel like there's one solution to how a company should be structured, no. but I think that a lot of people feel like, oh, we got a good idea, you get some smart people in a room, and then you just make the thing. Or we've got a job, we've got a contract, now you know, that's basically it, we get some chairs in a room and we just start making the game. And I feel like you have to design the company. So that, that's what I feel that people often miss is like, oh, we have to think about our company culture We have to think about the experience of people when they come in in the morning, when they leave at the end of the day. And to me, it's just applying design thinking to the idea of a company. Because you would always think about your players that way. You'd always think about how do they feel when they first see the logo and title? How do they feel when they first load up the game? Are we taking care of them? Are they having fun or not? So you just have to think about a company in the same way. Not that it's all about fun, but I feel like, you know, it's like, in academia, same thing with conferences. People are like, oh, we'll get some smart people on a room and put them on a panel. Doesn't work that way. How, what's a good panel? What's a bad panel? You can have, you can have, you know, you can put shitty people on a panel, but if the panel's well-structured, shitty, I don't know what shitty people means. You can, <laughs> you can, you can get great people on a panel, and then they don't have anything to say to each other because there was no prep work, there's no structure, there's no, there's no, there's not good moderation. So it's the same thing with a company. It's not just about getting good people in a room. It's about creating enabling structures that challenge them and support them, enable their collaboration. To me, a game designer creates the rules of a game, but then you don't know what your players are gonna do. So with a company or a project, someone has to kind of set up those structures, and then the project that results, the actual game that gets launched to the public, it's like the residue of a process. It's like, oh, this creative thing happened, and look, this game was the result. But that kind of goes back to the very first question you asked me, which is like, what's design about, or what's the thing the designer should know? And for me, it's that you have to think about what you do as a process, and how do you engage deeply with that process all the time? And the games we make, our creative stuff, it's like, it's like the skin we shed as we move on to our next form or our next thing or the next, next thing that we do, you know, and we leave these games behind and they're, they're good markers of what I was interested then and what I was thinking about and, and what that team was like and, and the problems that we solved, but there's already new problems for me to solve. And that's what I want to be thinking. about. And the the
0: beat goes on.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sorry. Getting a little prosaic.
0: (laughs) No, it's all good. I was actually thinking the exact same thing that like, you're you're showing you're actually showing what you were talking about earlier about how design is kind of a way of life and a way of being right. in the world rather than you know a seri- a bunch of rules. I think it's a great place to leave off. Um, I would actually love to talk with you more about about that process and about that way of life, but I think it's going to have to be uh, next time.
1: Next episode, I'll be back for sure.
0: Thanks, Eric. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Jordan. Great talking to you.
0: Have a good one. So where do you net out on tools and kind of frameworks and how they have helped you or hindered you and the value of these sorts of things? You know, it's so funny to talk to a guy who writes the book, Rules of Play, and and then says to me, hey, you know what? It's not about the rules, it's about the way of being. I feel like it's one of those paradoxes wrapped inside an enigma, or maybe an enigma wrapped inside a paradox. You know, Eric also kind of reminded me of a Zen monk or a buddhist monk some of his perspectives made me think of buddhist stories like the idea of you know you destroy the raft when you cross the river right when you are seeking to become enlightened you're looking for the wisdom for the info for the knowledge but once you've crossed into enlightenment you know that the ladder that took you there or the raft that took you across that river was a lie not unlike the cake in portal 2 and i think that's kind of the deal when it comes to these frameworks practices rules tools these concepts are incredibly valuable and useful and i think the more of them you have the better at the same time once you've mastered them you need to be able to let them go and that can be really hard to do especially since they've probably served you really well you know another expression in buddhism is the gateless gate you walk through a gate and you turn around and it's gone and i think that's a little bit of what it's like to master your craft whatever that may be whether it's in the game industry or not so i wish you an enjoyable journey through your gateless gate and i will see you on the next episode of playmakers